Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. About a decade ago, two researchers, Davies and Frank, researched and presented a historical analysis of the history of work and home separation in the United States. They noted that the ideal worker norm emerged at the beginning of the 20th century, relying on an idealized and gendered separation of home and work. And with technological advances and growth of markets, Davies and Fink asserted that work and home, which had been integrated previously, have become separate and, as a result, gendered. They note that by the 1950s, the office culture familiar today was already well established. And even though the workforce has evolved since 1950, the work-home separation ideology persists. The separate spheres ideology has endured, even as women have entered the workforce in large numbers and today represent half the wage workforce. And in this seminal article, Davies and Fink have shown how corporate culture requiring total devotion from all employees, combined with cultured gender norms, ultimately set the standard for certain workplace behaviors to be seen as worthy of reward. It ushered in the ideal worker as a present and always available worker. But this 24-7 availability hinges on someone being able to take care of all home and child care responsibilities, which obviously is problematic in a society where most couples have children. And with those couples, most of the time, both parties are working. And so even though the workforce has changed a lot over five or six decades, the ideal worker model, which is often an extreme work model, availability all the time equals the most devoted ideal worker, continues to lead to negative consequences for women and men. Societal norms and expectations continue to perpetuate the idea that being a wife and raising a family is the top priority for women while career advancement and financial independence are secondary. And for men, the opposite is true. And that doesn't work for women or men in a 21st century workforce. The societal value, this woman is homemaker, man is breadwinner, although antiquated, is aligned with the ideal worker's ability to compartmentalize and set aside uninterrupted work time, to prioritize work and be available above all else. And I would argue that woman as homemaker and man as breadwinner was never necessarily ideal for either. It has led to too many men working more than they want and having less time to invest in home and family and higher levels of stress, and too many women working less than they want and not reaching their professional potential. But at least with breadwinner homemaker, the ideal worker model, this idea of always being available makes some sense. In a 21st century workforce where women and men both more often than not work, it is incredibly disadvantageous and it is especially damaging in terms of the impact it has had on women's ability to advance. As long as we continue to cling to a culture where men are most valued for workforce success and women for parenting and homemaking, women will be at a disadvantage. And I've talked in previous episodes about how the current research is showing that men want to be more involved in their children's lives, in the parenting collaboration, in their homes and families. 
this extreme work model of presenteeism and availability all the time as the benchmark for the ideal worker not only leads to women not advancing, it leads to a host of negative outcomes for men as well, including increased stress and generally less happiness and wellness. But it has been advantageous for men in terms of career advancement. When we look at the historical outcomes in terms of women's advancing to those top levels of pay and prestige, this is where that 24-7 availability and presenteeism as a sign of commitment and ambition has really come to a head. The ideal worker, 24-7 availability with a focus on FaceTime has been advantageous for men who still, despite women's integration in the workforce, the research shows, often take on lower levels of home and family responsibility than women in those same positions. Cultural norms and standards and expectations lead to women taking on the lion's share, even when they're working full-time. So research has proven that the extreme work model has a negative impact on talented professional women, that this is a very big part of a discussion we need to have about why women aren't in those top roles. I conducted a study a few years ago of women in the Fortune 500 that revealed that same finding, that the ideal worker, presenteeism, extreme work model is not just an explanation, but potentially the explanation for the broken pipeline, where we see so many women who've made it to the middle, but can't seem to break through those top-level positions of power, pay, and prestige. Although women represent half the middle management roles, we still represent under 10% of the top roles, whether it's government, STEM, business, basically all industries. There have been so many initiatives over the past couple of decades in the workforce aimed at advancing women And they have helped some when it comes to getting us to the middle, right? But the extreme work model looms over us, creating a barrier to those top positions. And the research is clear on this, that there are invisible, unspoken, but no less clear and pervasive ideals, a mindset really relative to the necessity of 24-7 availability and the importance of presenteeism, especially at those highest levels. Executive leadership drives organizational values, and those organizational values in turn influence perceptions of organizational fit and who will fit in those top roles. And research continues to show how often, still, the ideal worker is the one who is seen as being devoted single-mindedly to the organization without personal distractions coming from family or other outside responsibilities. And again, historically, this ideal has worked well for middle-class men because this group is the most likely statistically to have wives who can pick up the slack. Even today, research shows that at the highest levels of leadership, at the top earner levels, men in those roles often have a stay-at-home spouse who provides the necessary support, affording men that single-minded devotion that the extreme work model calls for. Conversely, women, even those working full-time, are confronted with a greater number of additional responsibilities outside the workplace, which then can result in a reduction in professional aspirations in favor of family responsibilities. And this is really an attempt to avoid the consequences of work-family conflict when, again, as I've noted and as the research shows, cultural expectations delineate men as responsible for work and women as responsible for the home. This notion of constant accessibility feeds into the corporate culture where the ideal worker can be present all the time, available 24-7 
which too often has become the productivity standard against which all professional workers are measured, especially when failure to fully embrace the extreme work culture has also been interpreted in women, especially as having less desire for a promotion or advancement, less commitment to one's career. And there's a great book, it's Shipman and Kay, and it's called Womenomics, Work Less, Achieve More, Live Better. And the authors in this book debunk this misnomer of women not wanting power and not wanting to advance as an explanation for why women haven't broken the glass ceiling. They challenge this idea that our desire for advancement and power is less than our male counterparts. And that that is why, as is often touted, we aren't getting to that top-level role. They poignantly note regarding women in the workplace, quote, we have the same desires for our work existence. We'd like to spend our time at work engaged in meaningful and fulfilling pursuits. We've had enough of worrying about punching a clock or ringing some macho bell to the tune of he who stays in the office longest slays the biggest mammoth, end quote. And by the way, current research increasingly shows many men in the workforce feel the same way. But again, with societal norms of men being valued for work, they end up stuck in this extreme model. In so many study findings, including my own research with women in the Fortune 500, work-life balance and work-family balance consistently emerge as significant advancement barriers. The extreme work model really becomes an issue at the top-level roles. So the women in the study I conducted noted the extreme work model of constant availability, ability to relocate on demand, and prioritizing work and the company as inevitable at those top levels. Most women in my study expressed this as the major barrier to their advancement. Despite formal diversity priorities in their organization, several study participants communicated the presence of a work ethos or a set of unspoken rules which need to be followed to advance to those top levels. And many of the narratives aligned with these quote-unquote invisible rules supported the existence still of the extreme work model and 24-7 availability. Women in the study noted the extreme work model as most prevalent with executive level leadership, resulting in lack of work-family balance at that top level. Participants saw this extreme work culture as inevitable at senior levels, and as such noted this as a major advancement barrier. When asked about promotional aspirations, one woman in my study noted, quote, so that next level up, I'm not aspiring to be there for a long time. I want to maintain my work-life balance, and I don't believe I would be happy if I was working at that next level of what that would do to my family, end quote. When I asked if there was anything that could change that, anything that would make that next level of leadership an option or something she desired, she said, quote, honestly, the expectations of that role would have to decrease. Those people at that level are working 24-7. You're on call all the time, and that's not a trade-off I'm willing to make, end quote. And almost every woman in my study echoed that same concern. Another participant said this, quote, I have actually passed up a couple of promotions because it would not have provided any work-life balance whatsoever. People I've seen at the next level in my organization get texts from senior leadership seven days a week. It could be any time of the day, and that expectation is you'll jump right on that. She went on to say, quote, I think back to my son who was in Little League. He hit a home run and I wasn't there. It was at 6.30 at night, but I stayed at work to do something. I prioritized work over him. 
I still remember that even though it was so many years ago, end quote. And here's the thing. More and more men are telling a similar story. They want more balance. They don't want to miss the things that are going on in their lives and their relationships. And this isn't just in corporate America. It's all over in all industries. Still some in leadership clinging to the extreme work model and presenteeism as the hallmark of commitment, as the ideal. It really is a bastardization of the ideals of meritocracy. And I've talked about the myth of meritocracy many times on the Advancing Women podcast. We all love the idea of meritocracy. What's not to love? This notion that success is achieved solely based on ability and talent. But the thing is, who decides what is ideal? What abilities are more valued? What happens when having your butt in the chair, presenteeism, becomes the most valued ability? We've seen it. Women lose, but also men lose. We end up with what we have now, men working more than they would like to, and often women working and achieving outside the home less than they would like to. And in a recent episode, I talked about how men and women are not as different in their desires for work and family balance as we've been led to believe. And I'll include a link to that previous episode. We still, though, have this very well-entrenched alignment between presenteeism and the idea of meritocracy. The extreme work model, the prioritizing of work above all, is still too often seen as the ultimate expression of commitment. And this isn't just in corporate America. It's pervasive in most industries. The industry, by the way, that creates and publishes the research showing the negative impact of the extreme work model and presenteeism, we academics invented that word, actually. When I first came to the academy after working in the Fortune 500, one thing I was committed to was not adhering to presenteeism, button the chair, be available all the time. Devotion and commitment are shown by being the first one in and the last one out. I thought I was done with that. Finally, I would have the balance and the true meritocracy I had heard so much about, right? Well, let me share an example that was yet another eye-opener for me. So I came into this new role almost 20 years ago now and was assigned my courses and my advisees. As faculty, we're required to teach and advise students. So we have to advise five hours a week, and it's at our discretion as to when we advise. So I did all of my advisements on Tuesday and Thursday, twice a week, and it worked very well for me and my students. At one point, our department surveyed our students about their experience in the classroom and their experience with their advisors. Out of the entire department, and by the way, I had the highest number of advisees in the department, I had the highest ratings from advisees and the most requests from students to be their advisor. So let's talk meritocracy for a second. Here I had objective key performance indicators, the best outcomes in my department in advising, which was a key pillar of the job. So when I got called into my department chair's office to talk about advising, I went in excited and prepared to hear accolades or maybe even questions about what I was doing well. And guess what happened? Well, if you think I did get all those accolades, if you think I heard praise for my performance based on these key performance indicators, hold your applause because that is the exact opposite of what I heard. Instead, what I got from my chair at that time was that he felt that it was important that an advisor be available every day, not just two days a week. Now, we're researchers. 
scientists. And to be clear, there was no data suggesting a performance problem. On the contrary, when considered through a meritocracy lens, everything was working extraordinarily well. And so in a true meritocracy, I should have been rewarded or at least appreciated for the job I was doing or at least left alone. But here's the reality, unfortunately. Too often, people have invested their lives in this ideal that presenteeism and the extreme work model of being present and always available, answering emails at all hours of the day, being available upon request, saying yes to every project, having your butt in the chair equals commitment and equals doing a good job. And despite decades now of research that shows it is often the exact opposite that's true. That rejuvenation and balance, all of these types of things make people happier in their job, which is correlated with higher job satisfaction and performance and lower turnover, as well as a host of other measurable positive outcomes. We still cling to this meritocracy ideal of presenteeism, the extreme work model, 24-7 availability as the end-all be-all. It's like you get five points for doing a great job and 500 points for just being available all the time. And so you never win, no matter how good of a job you're doing when you're using that measure. And so in my example, even though I had implemented strategies that allowed me to do a great job and have balance and perform well, I was happy, students were happy, to my leadership, I was not as committed. I was not doing as good of a job despite those objective performance indicators that suggested otherwise. And this is one of the things that I get frustrated with when we talk about meritocracy. It's an ideal that the person who does the best job is rewarded. But the question always becomes, who decides the criteria? What is the best job? What are the most important attributes? The reality is that the criteria is often selected by the existing power structure who has historically benefited greatly and is highly invested in a system that has worked very well for them and that they're comfortable with. I show up, I'm in the chair, I'm there more than others, so that means I'm more committed. That means I'm working harder, end of discussion. Don't look at the research, don't look at any of those key performance indicators, they don't matter anyway. Look who's here all the time. That's what should be valued. So we have to keep talking about the extreme work model. We all, men and women alike, have to keep challenging it in practice, not just in theory. Research confirms that today both men and women are interested in more flexibility and more balance. And the research also shows it's quite possible to have that flexibility and still have highly effective job performance and positive outcomes. Here's the thing, though. Despite men and women wanting flexibility, research does show that it is women who see the biggest consequences to their careers in an extreme work model environment, which is why, despite so many decades of initiatives aimed at advancing women in leadership, we still see that broken pipeline. We continue to see women advancing well all the way to the middle, but the broken pipeline remains at the very top, where less than 10% of top leadership and top earners in organizations tend to be women. And so much of that is aligned with the extreme work model and presenteeism, which research shows is not ideal for men or women, but for women is nearly impossible. We cannot reasonably attain equality at the top in a world where women are expected still to do the lion's share of child and family care as well as work. We just cannot compete in an extreme work model, and we shouldn't have to. That does not have to be the barometer of success and commitment. Indeed, research shows it isn't. Valuing presenteeism is grounded in a lack of trust and in insecurity, period. 
The idea that unless you are available all the time, that you're not working as hard, that you're getting away with something, that you're not committed, it's nonsense. It's been proven false in the research, and it just isn't compatible with the needs of a 21st century workforce, with men and women both working in equal measure for the most part. Almost two decades ago, authors Hewlett and Luce coined the term extreme work model and asserted that this extreme model threatened to cull talented professional women that otherwise could have reached the top. And now, two decades later, we do see that this has been the case. Women are still greatly underrepresented at those top leadership roles. This model just doesn't work for women. And even if it is working for men's advancement, it isn't what most men want anymore. And that's something we really need to think about. It may have worked for a long time, and in some ways, for men may still be working. If by working, we mean advancing in your job, and we're not looking at those other measures of happiness, satisfaction, and joy. And so my manifest statement or key takeaway is this. This is a discussion, a fight really, for all of us. As long as it is just women pushing back, it won't change. We need men to also push back, to call it out and push back, because in the end, we know it will be better for all of us. We need a mindset shift away from an antiquated ideology that persists. We need to ditch the idea that being present and available all the time equals the ideal worker, because what it really equals is dissatisfaction, burnout, and a general lack of wellness and happiness. If we continue to accept and embrace a culture of presenteeism, all we will be left with is regret. I saw an Instagram post recently that punctuated this. It really struck me. It said this, quote, 20 years from now, the only people that will remember you worked late or checked emails on weekends will be your kids, end quote. And whether you have kids or not, it punctuates that the consequences of a life committed to work above all is not something that leads to fullness and happiness, and none of us should be okay with it. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback, so please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo. And thanks to all of you for joining me here today.